For you have not come to something that can be touched, to a burning fire and darkness and gloom and a whirlwind and the blast of a trumpet and a voice uttering words such that those who heard it begged to hear no more, for they could not bear what had been commanded. If even an animal should touch the mountain, it must be stoned. In fact, the scene was so terrifying, Moses said, I shudder with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriad of angels, and to the gathering and assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, who is the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous who have been made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks of something better than Abel's does. Take care not to refuse the one who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused the one who warns on earth, how much less shall we if we reject the one who warns from heaven? Then God's voice shook the earth. But now he has promised once again, I will shake not only the earth, but heaven too. Now, this phrase once again indicates the removal of things that have been shaken, that is, of created things. So what is unshaken may remain. So, since we are receiving an unshakable kingdom, let us give thanks and let us offer worship to God with devotion and awe. For our God is indeed a devouring fire. Well, it's... it's, uh... It's good to be back. Uh, my wife and I and the kiddos, we took a, a couple weeks and uh, we got away. Um, we had this like great idea back in whenever it was, May or something like that, that it would be fun to do a road trip with our kids. <clears throat> you know how far it is to the middle of Nebraska and then to the Black Hills in South Dakota and then back again? And in the back of your head, you're thinking, this is going to be a dream. This is going to be life-changing, life-altering, that our family is going to be so tight-knit at the end of it. And we are, of course, I mean, because we're a phenomenal family, but, you know, <laughs> but while we were away, it was fun. I got to speak um, up for a little bit, and... Um, it was just such a phenomenal reminder again. I love this church and I love that I get to shepherd it. Like it's like it is, you travel around it. it we, no doubt people are, are phenomenal wherever you go. But there's just something special about this church and how God's created us and formed us together, the warts and all. And, and anyways, it's just, it's always so much fun to be back and to, and to get to speak with you. But while we were, we were traveling the one thing that I had one child that kept saying is, are we there yet? <laughs> and so this is why I drive through the night and I drive straight through because when they're sleeping, they don't ask that question. <laughs> and so at first I made the mistake when this child of mine said, are we there yet? I, I said this, no, not yet, not yet, almost. Yeah, you, you know the fallacy in that, don't you? And after a while, right, I just found the kids, Lisa and I, it just, like, road trips wear you down. And while the kids are sleeping, all of a sudden my wife, out of the silence, suddenly says, what were we thinking? 
but we survived. We're all well. We, we, we now have three children instead of four. But, but it's just that thing. Journeys are wearying, aren't they? They, they wear us out. And this passage that we're going to be in Hebrews today, I think it's really important. It's, it, the way that I would describe it is just it's a journey. And the thing about a journey is that it's wearying. And the, and the weary that he's talking about in this particular passage that we're going to be looking at today is just the weariness that Christian and Chris were pulling together was just this idea that we keep going and we keep going. And as we get tired, we start to question and wonder and, and kind of pose in the back of our heads, was this journey really worth it? And there were groups of people in this church that the, that the writer of Hebrews is writing to, this, this precious little home church, that were asking this question, was it really worth it? And even some were walking away from the faith. So added to this is that not only were they asking the question of we're tired and is it worth it and why did we start maybe in some ways, but they're also asking the question, why are others walking away? And there's even some sitting on the precipice saying, maybe I'm going to walk away from this. And that's why it's so important what Christian talked about last week. Well, there it is. Is that there was a time in Esau's life, and he told you the story of it, in which Esau came in, and he's famished, and he wants something to eat, and he, in the middle of all of it, he gets cajoled by his brother, and in getting cajoled, he loses his birthright, and so this is what he's saying to him. The writer of Hebrews is saying to them, don't be like Esau and give up the promise of everything that God has for you for a bowl of soup. In other words, there's all these things that the world has to offer and it's beckoning us to go away from this life because in verses four through 11 that Chris was kind of talking to us about is that it just gets tiring and wearying. But the thing about this journey that he was telling us and he wants us to know and to understand is that this journey, God is prepping us and making us different and shaping us into the very kids that he wants us to be. So don't give up. He wanted us to know that. And then last week, Christian came in and he just, after we understood it, after we now know what God's doing, he's helping us to understand now, now live like you're, you're this group of people, but don't give up the promise for a cup of soup. And so here's what I want to ask all of you that were here last week. This isn't for you to answer, but I had to sit there after Christian preached that and ask the question, what's my bowl of soup? What is the thing so often that beckons me to, to come away from Christ and to hold to him and cling to him? And this was the question that was going through my head a lot. Now, when you're traveling, the thing that was beckoning me is we're in our minivan and I'm watching. In fact, one of the families from Cornerstone went out to this camp I was speaking at. We went in the, in the 2014 Chrysler town and country souped up V6. Yeah, I could take any of you off the line, just so you know that. <laughs> the Vaughns went in a motorhome. And as I'm driving along, have you ever thought about it? Just in my van, it was absolute chaos. And in theirs, I'm thinking, they don't have to have their kids in their seatbelts. They're like going around drinking soda, pouring Kool-Aid, having this great time in their motorhome, probably great music playing. Everybody's dancing, having fun. And in the back of my head, I'm thinking, we need a motorhome. <laughs> that was my bowl of soup. And then we realized, I can't afford one, number one. I'm not mechanical, so I can't fix it because they're broke every time you take them. And so we thought, we'll get a fifth wheel. I see this 
huge Ford F-350 monster dually pulling this mega fifth wheel that goes by me. And instantly, that was my cup of soup. And then I realized I can't afford an Ford F-350, nor can I afford that gigantic thing. And so then we thought, a teardrop trailer, that's what we'll get. <laughs> Kids can sleep outside. I mean, I was ready to abandon everything for the teardrop trailer. Then we realized we couldn't even do that because our, our vehicle won't pull that. And we had finally gotten ourselves whittled down to, what if we just had a trailer that we could put everything in? And I thought, let's do it. That was my new cup of soup. Now what he's trying to do here, though, is to tell us something that's so much more serious. Now the thing that we tend to do is that when we're sitting there and we get tired in our walk with Jesus, we tend to go back to what's familiar, don't we? It's those things that used to beckon us, the things that we knew and we tasted and we touched and we were with. It was these things that were just there that that as we sit there and walk with Jesus, we think about those things that used to be there and we want to go back to them to experience them. Now what they were doing was thinking, oh, we're gonna go back into the old covenant. That's the answer to all this. If we just go back into the old covenant, things are gonna be all kinds of better and, and this is what we need to do. The writer of Hebrews, though, and I love what he does, and this is what's so important today, and so I want everybody to listen to me carefully. Whenever you are struggling with tiredness and being worn out and being attracted to all these bowls of soup out there, the place that the writer of Hebrews goes is not to come alongside of you and say, no, one bowl is better than another bowl. He doesn't doesn't try to do that. He just takes them to the very end when they're standing in front of Jesus. Now here's how he's gonna do it. He's gonna grab two mountains to kind of explain this to us. One is gonna be Sinai where the people of God and the old covenant met him and and he's gonna talk about this experience that they had in Sinai and then he's gonna take him to a different mountain when we come to to the passage in verse 22 and he's gonna take him to this other mountain that's called Zion which was the, the hope of all the people of Israel. It was the hope of the church. This was the place that God was gonna come back and finally rule in all of his greatness from his throne and all things would be set straight. He was going to take and tackle this idea is you don't want to go back to that because there's something so much greater. And every one of us in our lives, we have it. We think there's something so much greater and we're willing to totally take that bowl of soup and forego the promise of God that's back there. I know within this room probably there are some of you that are teetering on your walk with Jesus wondering, should I teeter away from this? And I'm here to tell you today, don't take the bowl of soup because what God is offering you is so much greater than anything this world has to offer. I know there's some of you in here that are watching others to do it and you know you need to sit down with them and you need to plead with them. Don't go to that bowl of soup. Don't just give in to this thing that you eat one day and I won't say the way Christian said, but it just becomes excrement the next day. Don't do that. No, there's something so much greater. Man, well, it was God just reading about heaven again. When's the last time you just read about what it's gonna be like when Jesus comes back? See, his point was when he gets in there, as he's calling him in verse 18, he says, look, you're going to come to something that's not touched yet. 
In other words, there's this place, Zion, that you don't even know about yet. You don't know how phenomenal it is. But God has made promises to us, and whatever God promises is greater than anything you could ever imagine. Don't go back into what you can taste and see and touch the familiar in what it is, but instead trust God that his promise that he has for us is so much greater. And the place that then he says there is don't go back to what may be touched. He says, but you've come to something different. You're going to come to this place called Mount Zion. Now, the thing in which he now does this, though, is he's going to give them a reality check about what it was to go back in the Old Covenant. In other words, let me tell you about where you were wanting to go so that you understand where you were wanting to go is nowhere compared to the promises of God. The thing I was speaking at this last week, um, a young girl walks up to me after, she's maybe 20 years old, and she says to me, you know, the first night you spoke, I hated you. Hi, I'm Todd. (laughs) She goes, but you wouldn't believe this. The more and the more you talked, you made sense. And you walked me away from a huge decision that I was going to make that was going to affect me maybe permanently. She began to tell the story. She'd been battling with same-sex attraction, and she was totally kind of beginning to move out into that world, beginning to explore it a little bit. She was beginning to venture into these avenues that she'd never been before. And even one of the nights I spoke just on same-sex attraction, on, on issues around that, just to kind of let parents and everybody know, how do, we, how do we lovingly work through something like this? And she said, but it wasn't until you got to the part about what I would be foregoing to go pursue that, that everything stopped. She said, I started to realize this temporary just going after what I want wasn't worth it in light of everything that God had given me. Now what he's going to do is he's going to take them back and you can see this. On the day they show up at Sinai, now you've got to imagine this, when they're standing in front of God, this is what happens to them and this is what he's saying. So you want to go back to this? Is this what you want to do? Okay, here's what it means to go back to it. It means a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice. Who wants to go back? His whole point being, you don't want to go back to that. He's building this idea of the separation of God. Remember, we've been talking about this, that in the Old Covenant, God was drawing his people near him, but he was saying, only so close and stop. You cannot come near me, because if you come near me, you will surely die. You can't do it. His point being, you want to go back to that? You want to go back to this reality that you stand on the mountain, and he even goes on and he says this, that indeed, even Moses said, this is so terrifying that he didn't even want to go near it. That's what you want to go back to. It's that thing that he's just beckoning him. Are you sure you want to go back to that when God has something so much more for you? He's saying there's greater promises. Now the promises that we have are just there. They're all in front of us. It could be campers like I talked about. It could be same-sex attraction. In their case, this is what they were saying is I just want to go back to what's comfortable. Now let me just say this. Anytime you come to the point where you are seeking comfort in things other than God, be very afraid. Anytime we want to find comfort in the things that we used to find comfort in, be very afraid. Why? Because suddenly we're beginning to relay that maybe that soup is something better than I thought. This is what he's trying to tell them. Don't go back to it. Ixnay, stay away. He says, because you've got something different. Now watch what he's going to do here. He first puts out in front of them this idea of the place in which they're going to reside with God. 
Have you ever just wondered and pondered what it's going to be like when you reside with God? I always read John 14 and he says, in my house there are what? Many mansions or many rooms, we don't know what it is. But for over 2,000 years, this place that Jesus went to prepare a place, he's preparing right now. Now I'm sitting there wondering, what does it look like after 2,000 years of God's creative work coming to bear on this new Jerusalem in which his people are going to live? But not only that, and here's what we're saying, is that that place that you wanted to go, he said, is this place in which you were only going to experience fear because you weren't now transformed to be with God. God has been wanting you to draw him near to himself, and there's finally going to be this place for those that hold on to the very end, those that persevere, in which now we're going to be able to enjoy God. And the idea is that this God that's been being told about all throughout the Old Testament is finally going to come down and be with his people, and he's going to rule on high, and all those things that we've ever worried about and wondered about and been insecure about, finally the king will be here and all will be dealt with. Man, while I was driving, I was listening to talk radio for a while. If you really want to get angry, (laughs) listen to talk radio. First, I thought I would listen to a real liberal dude. It was just, man, they seemed so angry. Then I listened to the conservative people, and oh my gosh, it was just anger and vitriol, and it was just a world, you can just tell it, can't you? In the world in which we live right now, everything just seems wrong. And he takes us to a time in which Jesus, when he comes back, will make all things right. Imagine waking up tomorrow and there's no Democrat or Republican. Jesus, the idea here when we talk about this new Jerusalem is the idea of reigning. The king will arrive and reign. But not only that, here's the other picture he gives us. Oops, let me go back. I don't know why I missed one. Oh, Actually, the in-between part, to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Don't you love that word, festal? The other thing that we'll see is not only God reigning on high, but now he talks about innumerable angels, and now these angels are not like at Mount Sinai trying to keep the people away because they might die. Now all of a sudden, it's these angels that are sitting around the throne, and they're coming together, and the idea of festival means they are celebrating, and the idea I think that he's trying to communicate is the victory of God. I've always wondered what it's going to be like the day that finally God comes down, he establishes his throne forever, and in this moment now when Jesus Christ, he then takes care of Satan, he takes care of sin and death and anything that has ever stood in front of him, and all the congregation of the angelic realm, which he says is innumerable, begins to cheer. What is it like for angels to festally cheer? And I wonder sometimes, you know those moments when we're sitting at a game and the crowd just erupts? I was sitting there, I was watching the, 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 um, all, on the All-Star break, the Home Run Derby, right? And they're going through all these different things, and I can't think of the kid's name from New York. What's his name? Aaron, Aaron Judge. I don't really care because the Yankees don't matter to me. <laughs> but with every home run in his first round, man, it was like 15. 20, I think he ended up hitting 20, and the crowd is just erupting. 
I think there's something inside of us that we love it, but I think the reason that we love it is because we're longing for the day when finally this eruption takes place and all of these angelic realm cheer in the victory of Jesus. We want something to cheer for. We want something bigger than ourselves. We want to see that. And I'm telling you, for any of us that might be sitting on the benches or, or kind of teetering or those that might be sitting there wondering what happened to people and how do I talk to them, we need to go remind them that there's coming a day in which not only Jesus will rule, but all the angelic realm that is innumerable will now be cheering. And oh, by the way, those with him get to join in with him because the next thing he says is the assembly of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven. So it's not just that Jesus is going to be there reigning on high. It's not just that the angels will be sitting there screaming. But the third group of people, this idea of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, he's talking about us. Man, the other day, I don't know how many of you know Ray DeLaff, but went to visit him. And one of the promises he made is that he wouldn't die before I got back from vacation. And I told him I would show up Tuesday morning. And so we, he just laughed. He goes, well, we both kept our word. And we just began to talk. And I said, what have you been thinking about the most? Now anybody that's facing death knows what they start to think about, don't they? He goes, I'm wondering what it's gonna be like to finally stand in front of Jesus. And the second question he was asking, and I wonder who's gonna be there. It is nutty to me to think that all of you in here that know Jesus along with me one day, you and I will be with the angels screaming. Isn't that crazy? Like, you're going to come up to me at some point when all of a sudden, one of you, I don't know who, which one of you, but as the angels are screaming and we're sitting there, as Jesus is totally coming into his reign, and one of you is going to hit me, you know, on the side. Well, you know, it won't hurt because it's heaven, but you'll hit me. And after you hit me, right, we're going to look and go, remember that day you talked about it? Here it is. It's finally arrived. See, I think in the back of our head what Satan lies to us is that day's not gonna come. The writer of Hebrews, though, makes sure that they understand that no, that day is coming and all of God's people that are sitting here today and I think his idea is the alive ones because it's the ones enrolled in heaven. We're, we're not the ones that have arrived yet. We're the ones, though, that will be there and I can't wait because I know my wife's gonna be there with me. I can't wait because we're gonna be sitting there celebrating Jesus together. I know one of my children who has come to Jesus, it appears, is now also gonna be there with me. I can't wait to see all of those that I love and I can't wait because I know that God is going to curse you in heaven to be near me. And so I'm sorry, right off the front back. But we are going to cheer loudly as the cornerstone section going, I remember that. But we gotta remind each other. Remember Christian talked about this is not a Lone Ranger thing last week. This is why we need each other. I need you all in my life at different times to remind me that it's worth it. That as we get caught up in all the different things that are happening, that, that for me personally, it's, it's, well, I probably should say my poor wife and marriage, and, and then there's this other side of it of just parenting and trying to figure out how to make things work and the jobs that we have and all these different things that swirl around us. We need to be reminded at the end of the day that there is a destination to which all of us are walking in his journey and moving towards. Don't get tired because when you arrive that day, it will be worth it. 
Don't quit. Don't take the cup of soup. Don't do it. But not only that, in the very center of this, and I think he does it for a reason, is God the judge of all. Now on one side, when we imagine the judge, like every time I go in the courtroom, I don't know how many of you are this way, I'm massively intimidated. It could be the tiniest little man or woman, and I'm still like, they put on that robe, and I'm like, (sighs) in this case, though, it's something different. The idea of being judge of all is that literally God in this moment has reckoned everything and all justice has been brought to bear. I was reading this, uh, this past vacation and one of the things I was reading about was the Holocaust. Oh my gosh. As I'm reading about all the things that took place and then we came home and my wife and I watched a movie on it, the back of my head, I was so angry. I was just frustrated and I wanted justice. And in the back of our heads sometimes we wonder, that Hitler that took that sign of pill, how dare him because he didn't receive justice. And I can promise you in the very end, he will meet justice because he will meet the judge of all. But not just Hitler, all that aren't enrolled as this assembly will meet the judge one day. The idea is, is all these things that just seem to plague us, that aren't out there, we wonder, when is this all going to be set straight? When are things going to be made right? And the idea is, is, he puts this in the center, especially for a group of people that are in the midst of persecution and difficulty and wondering, does God hear me? Does he care? And the idea that he throws in the middle of it, there's a coming a day in which the God, who's the judge of all, will reckon justice and all will be made right. Can you imagine what that world is going to be like? He includes in this next group of people, man, why did I miss things? Must be Billy's fault. Look at the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Well, I mean, it couldn't have been mine, so I just wanted to make sure I clarified that. The spirits of the righteous made perfect. That group of people, if the first group of people is all of us, the second group of people would be all the people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and throughout time that have known God. In other words, this includes Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It includes David. It includes Jeremiah and Isaiah. It includes Peter, Paul, and Mary. And I'm not talking about the singers. It includes all those that have gone before us. Like in some way, we always think goodbye. I'll never see you again when somebody dies. But for those of us that are in Christ Jesus and the one who is in Christ Jesus that dies, it is not goodbye. It is simply see you later. We're always so fearful of dying because we think there's a finality to it. And the writer of Hebrews is saying there's not a finality to it. There are groups of people right now in the very presence of God that are his, that are the ones that God has already in a unique way judged over, declared them righteous, and they're the ones that, and the idea is, is that will invite us into this. That's where we're going. And the one that I love the most, that I can't wait to see, is Jesus. He calls him the mediator. The idea of mediation that he's talking about here is that literally he's the only one that could bring us to God. 
In all the shame of who we are, we couldn't ever get there. But another one came, and literally the idea was he grabbed us, and as the one who was able, brought us to the Father. And so therefore, we're not going to see a scowling God or an angry Jesus. The idea is, I died as mediator to bring you to the Father. The idea is invitation. Welcome in. I love you. I care for you. I died for you. I made you different. I put you all those different things that Chris talked about in verses 4 through 11, not because I was an evil, awful God, but because I was preparing you for this very moment in which now you wouldn't see God dimly, but now you would see us face to face. The welcoming reality of Jesus. It's at this point that we'll hear those words, the anthem of the church. Well done, good and faithful servant. I can't wait to hear those words. I know he's going to have to deal with some other junk in my life. I get that. I'm an elder of Cornerstone. I'm going to be, in a unique way, judged in a certain way. But the idea is, is that he's beckoning. The last part of it is, he says, is to the blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. When he talks about this idea of the blood of Abel, I think, I can't remember if Chris referenced it. No, it's not there. Is it? Shoot. Chris referenced it in Hebrews 11.4, just this idea that Abel is this one and in his death, his blood still speaks today. Is that when this throne room before God, there's this blood that was signed the covenant, the idea that marked it, that the signature on this covenant is the very blood of Jesus and it's still, the idea is, it speaks like the blood of Abel except it speaks a better word. It speaks of the salvation of mankind. Everything about this just echoes and echoes and echoes. It is worth it. That means that in our community groups and in our our, our groups in which we meet inside of children's ministry and student ministry, whatever group that you're a part of, one of the things that you must do ongoingly and regularly without ceasing is telling one another about where we are going because when we forget where we are going, we are in danger of taking the bowl of soup. We have to tell each other. I confess to my wife, I don't tell her enough about heaven. What's crazy though when I was thinking about heaven is there's going to be a job I'm going to have in which I'm going to present my wife to God the Father one day. Isn't that nutty? Somehow in there, God the Father entrusted me with my wife, this precious one, this daughter of the king, and I'm going to come before him and now present her to her. He says, unblemished in this beautiful way, in this presentation of sorts that I'm going to give is this is this very moment, and I don't think about heaven enough in regards to her. I don't think heaven drives us enough in all kinds of the things we do. I don't think it it drives us enough in our understanding of how we spend money and and where we go to work and whether or not our kids should go play, you know, whatever sport it is. I can't even think of a kid's sport now off the top of my head. Either way, that's where Satan dwells. And But it's just like, oh, all these different things that are going on. We need to allow heaven to be the thing that drives our understanding of why we would do what we do. He's getting back to the no thing. Before we do, we need to know, and once we know, we need to do. And that means we would do anything. Now, Jesus does something in Matthew 6, and let me just kind of walk that through. What time is it? Okay, I got time. 
He says something in Matthew 6 that is important for this understanding of talking about heaven. In 19, he says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now look at this. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, most times we stop there. Now, let me show you the next two verses. In the next two verses, he says, because what in the world? Okay, go with me to that verse. Good thing I still have a Bible. Go with me to Matthew 6. You've got to see this. Matthew 6. That's going to stink that Billy's fired already. My gosh. No, it's not his fault. It's totally my fault. Verse 22. Now watch what he does here. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now watch what he does in verse 22. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So what's his point? His point is is that whatever we put our eye to, whatever we put our focus to, is the very thing that will drive where we put our treasures. Now, while I was away on vacation, one of the best things that could have happened to me is I went to a place in which there was no internet and no cell service. Why? Because this little thing has become like clockwork and I'm like this. I was constantly putting my eye to this thing. His point is, is we need to put our eye or our focus on the correct thing. And the writer of Hebrews says, where we need to ongoingly place our eye is on the end when we stand before God. We need to, we need to place it on our future where our treasure should be. Now here's what begins to happen in us that's amazing. In the very next verse, if you look down there, after he talks about where we should put our eye, verse 24, because no one can serve two masters. His point is, is that where we put our eye will be our master, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. In other words, you can't put your eye on two places at once. You have to focus somewhere intently. This means, going back to the book of Hebrews, and his point being, is that our attention, if we're going to be people that don't buy the cup of soup, is we've got to get our eye on heaven. Let me ask you a question. Who in your life right now constantly challenges you about your future? I'm not talking a five-year plan or a ten-year plan. I'm talking a thousand-year plan here. Who in your life constantly reminds you of where your home is? Who in your life is the one that reminds you of what it's going to be like one day? Who in your life reminds you that it's worth it, that it's a pearl, and it's a treasure in the field, that it is completely worth it? Who does that? And if you don't have somebody, then you need somebody. And then the second question is, who do you do that for somebody else? Who do you just ongoingly remind of the destiny to which we're coming? Man, I was trying to tell my kids in our journey when we were going up to see the faces, I was like explaining to them what Mount Rushmore would look like. I'm like, check it out. I'm in my car. Josiah, these heads are like 40, 50 feet. And it's like four presidents. Washington, Jefferson, Roosevelt, Lincoln, and I'm just walking through it all. And we started to learn about it. And then we show up to see the faces. Now, here's the thing. We show up, and my son looks up at him, and I go, what do you think, buddy? He goes, that's it? (laughs) 
giant heads. I promise you we will not say that in heaven. I promise you. The reason people fall away is not because of all the things we want them to do. It's because we forget our destination. Now, some of you still might be thinking, I don't really care. Let me get to where I'm supposed to be now because there it is. That blood, he says, is still speaking and do not refuse him who is speaking. It beckons us and it calls us. It says, don't give up on this thing. And his point being is those that give up, verse 25b, if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth. In other words, now he's going back to Mount Sinai. If they didn't listen to him, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, and I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. What's he talking about? I always laugh when we talk about the big one coming. There's a big one coming. When I was out in in Wyoming, the big one was that uh, Yellowstone is gonna explode. Just so you know, it's coming. I just thought you'd be aware of it. But everybody thinks the big one's coming to California. I'm here to tell you it doesn't even hold a candle to the big one that's coming. When God shouted across that mountain when he was sitting there at Sinai, it says everything shook. When you reference it in Exodus 19 and 20 and Deuteronomy 4 and 5, the idea was it just literally shook and it scared the people. He says there will be once more because that one was just a, uh, just a foretaste of the great one that's still to come. He says, in fact, this one that's gonna shake is gonna go not only across the earth in which it was there, but it's now gonna extend into the heavens and I even believe it's gonna extend into the heaven to which God exists and everything that is not of his kingdom, everything that is not destined for the end, when God is ruling over all, is going to be shaken and it's going to fall and so therefore all these things that we think are contentment and happiness and satisfaction, I'm here to tell you there are so many things that are just gonna collapse and the only thing that will be left is God his kingdom and his people everything will go by the wayside there was a guy who was at a coffee shop in the beautiful metropolis of North Platte Nebraska he saw me with my bible open and he said can I ask you some questions I said yeah sure sit down we began to talk through these various things and we were talking through what does it mean to follow Jesus and I began to kind of walk through this amazing story of God and and I looked at him and I go, what do you think is going to happen at the very end? He said, you know, I think the way I understand it is the universe will kind of collapse on itself and then it'll expand and life will start all over again. And I just begin to unpack for him some of this thought. I go, what if you're wrong? I go, what if there is a really a God? And okay, I'll give it to you. Maybe the universe is going to go like this. I don't know. But are you ready to meet that God. We sat and we just began to talk about it. He began to tell me that he grew up in a Christian home. He he grew up in this church in, in North Platte and he was around Christianity all the time. 
He talked about his dad being a deacon and his mom was the one who, who played the organ. And he talked about being in church and hearing all these stories. And then the thing that he said to me, though, was this very thing. He said, you know what? I just kind of got myself focused on a lot of other things. And all of that stuff just kind of became fairy tales to me. But he said, the reason I'm asking you today is suddenly I'm starting to realize that maybe these things aren't fairy tales. Maybe, just maybe, it's real. And I said, and here's the deal. If it's real then you're right, God is going to cause something to happen in the very end, and are you ready to see him? Now, let me ask this of everybody that's here. In verse 28, he's going to tell us, look, we have this unshakable kingdom. All of us are a part of it. It's coming for those of us that know him, and our God is this, this raging fire But are you ready? And I know this seems so old school and D.L. Moody and whatnot. But are you ready? The writer of Hebrews is saying, I promise you this is going to happen. What I just talked about is not a fairy tale. This is going to happen. Are those around you that you know, are they ready? Have you talked with them about it? Have you dealt with things in your life? Because his point being, for those of us that know him, oh, the joy of it. But for those that don't, oh, the horror when the universe shakes. And so what I want to just do right now is just to say this. Don't, don't play with what we're talking about right now. Don't leave and say, oh, you know, Todd seemed a little angry. Or don't leave and go, oh, that was nice. Like, I think the writer of Hebrews, this is the pinnacle of what he wants us to get. We have to decide today, what are you going to do with this? Are we going to play games and go through the motions are we going to go through in our, 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 our small our community groups and say, oh, let's do our five questions? Or are we going to start to look at each other on a serious level and start to understand that this destiny to which we are shaped and molded, the desperation that we need each other, is so huge to remind that that day is coming. And now, in the meantime, what we know, remember I said this at the beginning, what we know should compel us now to do if this is really, really true, and this is what I've been trying to ask myself, if this is really true, what are you going to do? Now, don't leave here today without pondering, what am I going to do? Now, for some of you that are teetering, I'm pleading to you, don't get the bowl of soup. It's not worth it. For those of you that are in here that know you need to go talk to people, don't wait. The longer you wait, it just kind of shifts back. You need to go talk to people. You know, you need to go encourage the saints and talk to the lost and be out engaged with people. 
I think sometimes we just get into church mode where we, we love to sit there and we love to think and wrestle and do all these different things in which we just go through the motions all the while. There's this grand mission of God to which he has called us to and he's called us now to remind one another as believers, don't miss your home. And he's reminded us to go to the lost and remind them that there is a real God who is a raging fire who's going to shake the universe, but he is beckoning through this new covenant for you to come and to bend your knee to him and to truly now experience what it is to be human what are you going to do with now this idea of what we talked about what we know and so I'm just going to give the next minute or two this morning I just sat there and I wrestled this through just asking myself over and over, what are the believers that I need to encourage, that I need to remind them of our destiny? What are the unbelievers that I need to reach out to? Who, how do I need to tell others I need them to speak that into my life? So the next couple minutes, the band will come up. After a while, we'll sing. But I don't want us to leave here and say, oh, that was nice. I want us to leave here now as groups of people that understand as followers of Jesus our eternity is amazing. So the next couple of minutes are all yours.